This episode is brought to you by Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma. When it's time for an aircraft component inspection, overhaul, repair, or replacement, you need experienced technicians you can trust and friendly service you can count on. Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma, a family-owned business since 1959, delivers just that. Our techs have real-world experience and provide sales, service, and overhaul for piston engine aircraft accessories. We also have limited turbine capabilities such as fuel pumps, starter generators, and prop governors. And we can overhaul propellers ranging from fixed pitch to turbine. Propeller pickup and delivery service is available. And one more thing, mention this podcast to receive 5% off your next sale, service, or overhaul. Visit aircraftaccessoriesofok.com. This week on Hangar Talk, Garmin and Flight looking into some challenges with ADSB traffic. And Wheels Up hits continued troubles. Big surprise, your biggest threat for a UAS encounter is near an airport. And no surprise here, AirVenture has astounding numbers this year. All right, David, you ready to do some Hangar Talk? Let's do it, Ian. From AOPA, your freedom to fly. This is Hangar Talk. The 1056 turn right heading 130, contact final 132.4. Turn right, guys. With your hosts, Ian Twombly and David Tulis. This is Hangar Talk. Welcome to Hangar Talk, everybody. I'm Ian Twombly. And I'm David Tulis. David, our guests are Bob Reynolds and John Scatone. These guys, you probably don't know their name, but you've probably heard of what they did. They flew to the lower 48 in fewer than, actually many fewer than, 48 hours. Yeah. Uh, that's an incredible accomplishment. It is. It is. And, you know, the thing is, first of all, thanks to Jim Moore for tracking the guys down. And, you know, 48 hours for 48 states would be a good record, but these two shattered it yeah so yeah we'll hear more about it there were some challenges along the way yeah uh, as there always are you know now other folks are going to have a pretty high bar to meet yes absolutely okay so we're excited to talk to them a little bit later but first let's talk about the news it is a little light as it usually is after air venture but a couple of important pieces we'll start with the Garmin for flight issue now this is really important if you have a Garmin 375 and that is because these two pieces of software they think are maybe not communicating very well and that's resulting in some traffic loss display on the 375. Yeah and for those of us who had been looking into getting one of those Garmin 375s they are not cheap boxes uh, but they are quite capable. That's a GPS navigator and ADSB in and out transponder and with the latest edition of ForeFlight, the latest firmware of the Garmin and the latest ForeFlight, it looks like there's some compatibility issues. And Ian, it would be bad to not be able to see ADSB traffic yeah. if you're expecting to see it. Exactly. In a in a you know in the normal environment from which you would expect to see traffic. Yeah, because as I understand it, it's not like a full failure where you're going to get a, an alert that says traffic not available or something like that. It's just like some targets might be dropping off. They just uh, don't show up. Yeah. And yeah. like flying into AirVenture for one thing, which we'll talk about AirVenture a little bit later you kind of do want to keep an eye on the traffic there yeah that's right and even at your home airport it's good to see what's going on in the pattern if you have a pretty busy airport yep. and it's great to have a little bit more situational awareness yeah you know and it really brings up how different our lives are now i think with avionics i mean you think about we were just talking about the kx 155 right and so you think about like your kx 155 and just vors and looking at a chart and it's like 
that was your setup and it was stable and it was stable for years and years and years. And now, Oh yeah. 20, 20 years. And this stuff is still rocks yeah. on. And the reason why you and I were talking about it off the recording is that King came out, Benix King came out with a, a new unit a new to replace yeah. that. It's only 5,200 bucks. Yeah. I bet people would rather they make parts for the KX 155 again. Right. But yeah. Right. But it, you know, every time you have a software update, it's like installing a new piece of avionics in your airplane. Cause there's going to be these well, potential compatibilities and then yeah, there's going to be right. new capabilities you have to learn. And so it really is just constantly changing. It's a totally different world in that way. Like we were saying to begin with on this particular PC, and I can't really afford that GNX uh, unit right now. So mm -hmm. I have been using a little unit called a Scout. It's made by yeah. UAvionics. It was one of the first portable ADSB solutions out there is 200 bucks. And I think you at one point tried to build one of those Raspberry Pi units that you could yeah. fashion yeah, together. Yeah, when I was doing products for the magazine, that's right. Yep, found the instructions. And it was pretty easy, as I recall, although somebody might have sold a kit. I'm not like a go out and buy your own right. parts and make it from nothing kind of guy, but yeah, it, it worked. Yeah, but for me, like uh, right now, my scout unit is uh, in transit somewhere in the state of Washington. I just got back from an Alaska trip with Dave Hirschman, and I sent some equipment up there that never made it to our destination. Thanks, FedEx. <laughs> but to replace something like that, like they don't even make that little guy anymore. Yeah. There's one called a ping. It gives you ADSB traffic, but not weather. Mm -hmm. And so you and I did a little bit of a deep dive into this portable stuff real quick. There are numerous units out there that will give you one or the other and only a handful of portable units that would give you both traffic and weather. And they're, they're all pricey. Yeah, you know, it's like we expect electronics to get cheaper, but it seems like what's happened is it's the stuff started kind of cheap because they wanted to get people into that iPad world. And so, uh -huh. yeah, we had, you know, cheap apps and cheap accessories and things like that. But then as everybody has adopted it and we've it's become sort of a must have for most of us, it's like. The prices haven't really gone down much in the last couple of years, and there haven't been a lot of changes in the capabilities. So in terms of the, the accessories. Right. So, yeah, it's, it's interesting that what you bought many years ago, you can't even get anymore. And uh, another interesting thing that this popped up the other day, I did some aerial photography around Homer, Alaska, just a couple of days ago. And uh, the helicopter pilot, Matt, was saying, you know, as far as ADSB goes, and in Alaska, that is where this started. Yep. ADSB traffic and weather, because it's really super important because the weather changes there. And it can change two or three times in five minutes. I mean, it's crazy. Yep. But he had an interesting uh, idea. He said, well, what if everyone just had a portable unit and there were just a couple hundred bucks? Great. You know, then all of a sudden, everyone, everyone would have one yeah. versus $18,000 or $12,000 or, you know, even 6000 by the time you, you get it all in for one of the Stratix transponder ADSB units. And, you know, by the time it's installed, six grand is a lot of money for someone like me who's got a Piper Tri-Pacer. Yeah. You know, it's, like it's more than, you know, 10% of the airplane value. Yeah, right. right, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, that's a, that's a very good point. You know, David, speaking of cash and lots of it, wheels up. Oh, yeah. We should talk about. So Wheels Up, we've talked about some of their struggles lately. The latest on that is that Delta, which is actually an equity partner, a 20% equity partner in Wheels Up, right. has given it a substantial boost of cash, and it still does not appear to be enough 
to keep them afloat. At least that's that's the thought process. Yeah, and according to NBC and also Reuters, the Wheels Up experience has said, and this was just the other day, that there was substantial doubt about Wheels Up's ability to continue operations. Mm-hmm. And even with that short-term funding from Delta, and that's surprising to me because this is a company that Kenny Dichter started and it just, you know, busted out of the gate doing gangbuster business. Yeah. Uh, we talked about this on a, a show not long ago. A lot of sports personalities use wheels up to get mm-hmm. from place to place. Uh, a lot of the golfing community does that, you know, pro golfers. And it's an interesting business model, but their shares fell 42% the other day on this news. Yeah. So the business flights were down 3.6% compared with July of 2022 versus this year. And it looks like cloudy skies are ahead for Wheels Up. Yeah. And the other thing, and this is referencing an AvWeb story that Mark Phelps wrote, so just want to do props to them. He makes the point that they're supposed to shed some of their non-primary business lines, including their charter management line. And apparently they have the third largest in the country, Wheels Up does, after NetJets and FlexJet, and they've agreed to sell it to Airshare. Oh, wow. So that'll be another huge bunch of cash it's gonna it's like you know sort of like make it to the next day make it to the next day it seems like that's kind of where they are these days you know i worked for a company like that a while back in the wire service business and it's just it's a no-win situation it's a it's a spiral that will not have a happy ending i can assure you of this i haven't lived through it but you know uh, just to review folks we started talking about this back in may when uh wheels up founder kenny dichter stepped down as the ceo and new leadership was installed now he did get a you know pretty nice golden parachute on the way out and um, and nothing against him because he founded a really interesting business but you know you're looking at a lot of money that would be paid out to him just not only a salary but future flights on on wheels up aircraft that's right And we'll be right back. All right, David, so talking about drones, there's a new study out in part from Embry-Riddle and some others in the industry. It's published in the SAE International Journal of Aerospace. And this is really interesting. It it looked at the Dallas-Fort Worth metro area between August 2018 and July 2021. And they wanted to find out the nature of some of these close encounters with drones. Right. And they found 24 near misses in that time, which is actually maybe fewer than I would have expected. And they called that anything within 500 feet. Uh And they gave some recommendations. Not surprisingly, most of these happened near an airport. And interestingly, Ian, they mostly happened at altitudes above the UAS limit of 400 feet above ground level. Oh, that is interesting. Or within 400 feet of any structure. So let's keep that in mind as you're in the pattern Yeah. or near, near an airport. So wait, let me stop you. You're, you're a drone pilot. Yeah. You use drones for your photography. Yep. A little bit, yeah. It's not your primary tool, but you use it. Why would you need to go above 400 feet? You don't. Uh, in my opinion, you don't. Unless you're doing a survey of a building, say your job is to survey a tall building, an antenna, something like that. You know, some antennas in are 3,000 feet above well, that's the ground. True. That's true. But particularly, I flew near one in the Midwest, but you would not. The higher you go, the really the worse the angle is. After about 200 feet, um, it's not a great picture, hmm. in my opinion. Now, other folks might differ. So do you think it's mostly, do you think it's hobbyists who are messing around? 
I would imagine that is the case, Ian. And okay. the hobbyist is not going to be someone who is adhering to the FAA regulations because they're probably going to not know of them, or if they do, they will ignore them. Mm, yeah. So I think that might be where, where part of this is coming into play. You know, drone pilots have a pretty substantial set of guidelines and rules and regulations to adhere to, lest the FAA come down on you. And if it is your business, you do want to, you know, conduct your business appropriately. Yeah. Uh, you, yeah. you don't want your, your certificate pulled or anything like that. Yeah. But I think a lot of people don't know about it and they're not cognizant of it. The other thing I want to make a point about, you know, I've done some uh, cross country flying pretty recently and, and looking at the notams for air, airports along the way, pilots listening, don't forget to check all these notams because you will see the special use airspace for drones mm -hmm. noted in NOTAMs mm. and it'll note the passing time. If you use something like ForeFlight, it'll note your passing time and whether you'll be near or not near a scheduled drone activity. So do you keep that in mind? There are some tools in your tool belt. Yeah, that's a good point. But yeah, but I mean, uh, Dallas, you know, Dallas, Texas is a pretty, uh, pretty, hot and heavy area right there 24 yeah. close calls like you said that's between uh, 2018 and, and 2021 yeah so, so it's three years yeah. i mean yeah it's so the other thing you know they recommended that i guess there's this exclusion area right when you fly the drone it shouldn't work well uh, within a what a mile of the airport and they recommended to go to three and a half miles correct and that that's a good point that you bring up but the other thing is that you can sometimes get waivers for that mm-hmm Especially if you're working for the airport. Yeah, right. Or like you, you do photography on an airport usually. Right, yeah. right. That's a really good point. So keep that in mind. That's really interesting, though. I think there's something, some new technology that's going to come on board soon. The remote identification rule, it starts in September. When most drones operated outside these designated areas will be required to broadcast a digital license plate. That's what Jim Moore wrote. And he's mm. uh, our he's our drone expert on staff. And so that could be interesting too. As new technology comes on board, maybe we'll be able to see the drones a little bit better. Yeah. And that goes back to ADSB traffic. Yeah. And traffic in. And we were just talking about that. So yeah. perhaps that'll make it easier. And if nothing else, maybe the FAA can if they start to make some enforcement actions for people who are sort of flaunting the rules. It's like, you know, people take the hint and uh, hopefully start to behave themselves a little bit. All right, David, AirVenture. We talked about all the big news when you were out there the last show, but we want to do just a quick wrap up now that all the numbers are back. You mentioned many times how active you thought the show was. Oh, yeah. Some of the cool stuff you saw. And now we have the numbers. And EAA said a total turnstile clicks, and we'll talk about that in a second, turnstile clicks 677,000 people. A record. And that's up 27,000 from last year, 650,000, which was also a record because mm. last year, let's face it, everyone was coming back from COVID. They wanted to get out. They wanted to be there in person. And that made a big difference. Yeah. That I believe, if I'm not mistaken, last year, not this year, but last year, Jack Pelton allowed 18 and unders in for free. And so theory being they would bring their parents. Yeah. So, so apparently that did help. Yeah, that's right. So I want to talk about the turnstile click number. This is something okay. that I think is important to keep in mind when you hear the Oshkosh number. And that is, those are number of literal turnstile clicks, number of entries per Into for the, the total show. show. That's not number of individual people. So that's 677,000 entries. So you, for example, 
You went in seven times, eight times? Uh, I went in 10 times. Yeah, right. <laughs> yes. So I started on a Saturday and ended on a, the following Sunday. Yes. So if they only count you once a day, that's then you went in eight times. Exactly. Yeah. And obviously, a lot of people do stay all week. And so not to diminish the number, but just so we know what we're kind of talking about. I understand. Which is, yeah, it's right. not 677,000 people. It is huge, however, and all the markers were big, more than 10,000 airplanes. Yeah. And the camping was was out of sight too yes so more than more than thirteen thousand sites in the aircraft and drive-in camping it accounted for about forty thousand visitors forty thousand visitors camp that's incredible (laughs) amazing 93 different countries represented i think that's very cool 2372 people at that international visitors tent registered by all accounts a huge success I think, for EAA and for AirVenture. And it continues to just, I think, grow and grow. And it continues to be a place where that we all sort of were consolidating, right? AirVenture continues to grow, continues to get stronger. And it I, does. Yeah. yeah. Well, look, look at this. Uh, it, it, the total show planes, 3,365, including a record almost 1,500 registered in the vintage aircraft parking. Don't forget they gave props to the Cessna 170 crowd this year. They celebrated yep. an anniversary as well. So you brought one of those vintage airplanes. When we recorded last time, you were on your way to the the dinner or the celebration that evening. So w- what was the result? Well, Ian, I'm proud to say, hang on, let me let me pick up the award and read it so I don't miss uh, misread it here. <laughs> so yeah, um, the, the Tri-Pacer at the AOPA campus won Best Classic Aircraft, Outstanding Piper, quote-unquote, Other category so i guess nice the other category because there is you know if you've got uh you got super cubs and cubs that might have their own category you've got some cherokees that were you know built back then too as well and so yeah the command i think the comanches came on board in the late 50s so mm-hmm. what best right. uh outstanding piper other classic aircraft and a big thanks to the folks who helped me get there and you know all i did was fly it but Ian, I want to say I had a great time talking to all the folks that came by, and we chatted about Tri-Pacers, and we chatted about AOPA and about travel and photography. It was super, super cool to see so many folks who read the story, saw the video, or listened to you and I doing Hangar Talks podcast. That's cool, David. I I think... Obviously, you had a great week. I really hope to join you there next year. We'll see. Well, the ASAP folks have already demanded you to be there yeah, next that's year. Right. I know. Yeah. I can't disappoint them again. <laughs> they're they're going to disown me. And you know, did, yeah. uh, we did also say, I think last time, if not, I'll say it this time, the ASAP crowd wants to do two live yes. shows next year. And it was, it was very popular. So uh, if folks who are listening and you're going to go – and join us next year, and you're going to see Ian in person. Let's see if we can get two of those SA&Ps out there. And don't forget to listen to the podcast as well. Yeah, that's right. And we'll, we will release that one. Yep, very soon. All right. Hey, David, want to move on with our guests now to Bob and John. These guys, amazing. My favorite part about this is they credit their patient and supportive spouses and families, which you can imagine the planning for this would be, you'd have to obsess about it. So yeah, I'm sure it took over their lives for a number of months, but um, a cool feat Really proud of them. Really cool that they did this and excited to hear more about it.
Bob Reynolds. We're here talking uh, today about our, our uh, record setting, Guinness record setting attempt. Hi, I'm John Scatoni. Uh, we just set a record for the fastest journey by airplane through all 48 lower contiguous states. And what that Guinness has, uh, I think you had mentioned in an email, Guinness has actually confirmed that or is that up? Oh, oh, it's on the wall behind you. I don't know why it got there so fast. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, can I find the... Oh, outstanding. Excellent. Excellent. Good, Boy, huh? and they sent it to you in that frame too. I mean, that's, uh, that's awfully nice of them. They did. They did. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, I was just rereading the story that the Chicago Tribune ran in uh, June 7th with the two of you, about the two of you. Uh, I trust they, they got most of that right or, or all of it. So, yeah. I thought it was dead on. I really, yeah, 99%. I can't even tell you what part I might have said. Eh, not quite. It, it's a, it was a well-researched article, in my opinion. Excellent. Excellent. So uh, to kind of set the stage for folks, it sounds like you've been in the habit of taking long cross countries, <laughs> uh, real aviation journeys together for quite some time. And this became the next big idea. Is that is that how this went down? You just came out of the blue one day? Yeah. You want to know more about the early journeys or just this one? Because they kind of do set up. Yeah, let's let's you know, build last a little bit to the to the big one. So just brief intro how I met John. And by the way, I'm Bob. That's John. It's <laughs> by default. That's John. Um, the first time I met John, I was going out to do some instrument practice, and all my usual. I have a lot of flying friends, but nobody was available. And uh, who introduced us from service? Uh, Amy. Amy. Yeah. Uh, she said, "Hey, you meet this guy, John. He he likes to fly as much as you. He's always ready to go." So he shows up. We go flying. He's a great, he's really a great pilot. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm a really good pilot. John's a great pilot. And he beat the heck out of me and it was a really good day. And then we start talking about the kinds of things we like to do, you know, solo mountain flying and all this stuff. And John goes, well, I've been to Alaska multiple times. I, oh, that's on my list. So we start talking about Alaska. I get all pumped up about I'm going to Alaska. You know, so we're, we're like emptying our pockets on stories. The next thing I know, a week later, we become Facebook friends. John posts on Facebook, hey, I'm in Iceland. I'm like, how did that not come up in the conversation? You know, how did that not come up in this conversation? Because well, I don't like to talk about it before I do it. And he goes, it kind of jinxes it. So I'm like, all right, that's great. So then he does his cross-Atlantic trip for the first or second time. That was the first one. That was your first one? Yeah. So that was a cross-Atlantic trip. He comes home, and then I'm like, well, let's do Alaska together. It's nice to have somebody hold your hand the first time, right? So John, he gets back. We start planning this trip. And he, he, he goes, well, we're going to get to Seattle. Chicago to Seattle is pretty much a straight line. And then from Seattle to Ketchikan, missing the you know Canadian border, is more or less a straight line. And now we're in Alaska. I go, yeah, that's great, but that's not the way I roll. So, so I go, give me that flight plan. So day one, we go to, we land at Jackson Hole. We low past the Grand Tetons. We circle Yellowstone, the whole figure eight pattern. So we see, you know, everything there is a scene in Yellowstone, you know, small Niagara, Old Faithful, blah, blah, blah. We go up to Sturgis, Devil's Tower, Spearfish Canyon. I ride motorcycles too. So it became a, everything I've done on a motorcycle, I now want to do an airplane. We go go Mount Rainier, Mount St. Helen, the Royal Gorge. Now we're in Seattle. <laughs> and John's like, we could go home now. And this has already been an epic trip. 
So, and then from there, Alaska falls, we go all the way up to Barrow, we circle the Arctic Ocean, Skagway, Box Canyon Landing, which had me, you know, took a couple of years off my life. Um, so that's our intro to our first epic trip. And then Bravo, we go tell some about yeah, that. Yeah, I mean, and then that, I'd say that kind of became the way it changed a little bit, a little bit changed the way I fly. Uh, you know, Bob talked about, you know, I'd been to, I'd been to Alaska a couple of times before that. And so I was really good at planning the, the, the bits and pieces of flying around Alaska and, and sightseeing there. But I had originally planned, you know, let's get to Alaska. And when Bob suggested, well, let's go see all the sites in the lower 48 first on the way, I'd say that set the tone for a lot of other adventures together. Bob's got a Turbo Cirrus. You know, Turbo Cirrus does best when you're flying it at 17,000 feet. I think we've crossed the country at a thousand feet more times than I choose to count. <laughs> yeah, if, if I fly from Chicago to Texas above two thousand feet AGL, John goes, "There's something wrong." <laughs> so, I like to follow the river. If I go to Memphis, I'll follow the Mississippi River and follow the turns. And yeah, so so that's the way that whole thing played out, and that set the stage. And then uh, during COVID, well, you want to tell the, the the Bravo story? Well, yeah, I mean, during COVID, everything was shut down, and I hadn't flown for a few weeks, and. And I went up with a student and we just shot some approaches. And while we were shooting approaches, we looked at each other and says, well, you want to go shoot an approach at O'Hare? And we're like, can we do that? And well, the only way to find out. So we shot an approach into O'Hare and they let us land and we did a touch and go. And we flew away and we came back and they let us do it again. And they didn't well, charge a fee. No, no fees. They were actually really, really good. And Bob found out about that. And he says, wait a minute. <laughs> <laughs> we're going in. I want to do that. So, so you know, long story short, that, that came into Bob's late night idea that we should go land at every Bravo airport in the country. Can I rewind that story just a moment? Absolutely. Go so, for it. So I was terrified of going to O'Hare. And so we, you know, we're looking at the arrivals because even during COVID, even during COVID, you know, it's still a busy airport, right? So, and we're, we're, we're positioned to Chicago executive just north of it, way too close, right? I'm not going to take off. So we fly away, <laughs> we go to Indiana so that we can have time to catch our breath. And uh, they're landing to the east on one zero right, left, and center. And we're coming in on a 45. And you already know I don't have short stories. So <laughs> you already figured that out. So we're on a 45 to intercept one zero center. And the guy goes, well, what are your intentions? <laughs> it's, a, it's a very fair question, which I wasn't prepared to answer. But I said, well, there's two pilots on board. We'd sure love to land, taxi back, fly around the pattern, and then we'll get out of your hair. This long, awkward pause. <laughs> and all of a sudden he goes, you know what? We're going to grant your request. So we land on 10 Center. He goes, 180 on the runway, taxi back, clear to take off the right traffic. I go, John, it's your airplane. Don't stall it. <laughs> <laughs> so then, yeah, so then that night, couldn't go to sleep. And it turns into, call me in the morning. We're going to hit them all. I'm sorry, back to you. <laughs> that, was, that was a good story. So that's what we did. So, so then we made a plan to basically fly to every Bravo airport, which I think there's 36. 35, 34, 35. Everyone except Reagan. Yeah, we couldn't. We, 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 that was the only one we couldn't get permission to go into. But uh, that was an ambitious trip, too. I think the way we originally had mapped that one out, we figured we could bang it out in three days, and it ended up being like three weeks. We did, yeah. yeah. <laughs> we were, you know, the whole thing was I have a partner. John doesn't own – I have a partner in the airplane who owns half. I never fly with him. He, he does more family trips and stuff. I do more adventures. So with John, 
I called John. I go, hey, we're leaving Monday. Can we go Monday? <laughs> He's like, I think I can. But then my wife, she'll never say no to stuff like that. And I think you've got a very long leash as well, right? Yep, yep. But then I also have a partner in the airplane. I mean, the joke with my friends is they have long leashes. I have no leash. <laughs> I think my wife likes me better when I'm not home. <laughs> but uh, so it was originally going to be nonstop. And I think it was three weeks, not three days. It was a long time. I mean, everybody's saying yes, but everybody's kind of reluctant. You know, nobody's really buying into this. So we ended up cutting the country up into force. West Coast, everything west of the Mississippi, everything south down to Houston and back. East Coast, we did in one day. We did 10 Bravo airports in one day. Chicago to Boston, Cleveland, Dulles, Pittsburgh, the, the trifecta. New York? Yeah, New York, New York, LaGuardia, JFK. So we do that whole thing. And then we finish off going southeast. And it was actually pretty epic because on the way home, we have to hit Atlanta, busiest airport in the world. That's our final, final airport. We went down to Miami, hit Orlando, coming back. And... It was surrounded by thunderstorms. There were pockets, but man, it was, we earned it, right? Oh, I mean, yeah. we're both, oh, yeah. we landed oh, yeah. Atlanta. It's like, we're done. We hit them all high-fiving each other. And, and yeah, that was, that was epic. I mean, that was best. And we were working. We're calling shots with the controller. Well, this is what we're seeing. What are you seeing? And, you know, one of us has the airplane. The other guy has the radio. So we came out of that just like, man, there's nothing we can't do. <laughs> First, at the end of that, at the end of that trip, we had hit the last Bravo airport. Bob dropped me off in Princeton, New Jersey, because then I flew my second Transatlantic. <laughs> well, you want to talk about a buzzkill? We hit 10 Broadway airports in one day, and I'm in, you know, oh, I'm a man. And the next day, John, I'll see you. I'm crossing the Atlantic. Getting <laughs> ready <laughs> That just sucks. So, and, you know, a lot of that, like you say, low altitude. We've done a lot of low altitude flying. But that's kind of the setup, right? And then there's a lot of other journeys. Landing in the Grand Canyon, Sedona, Telluride, going around collecting. I'm, I'm kind of running out of airports that I think – Look, if you know an airport that's epic in the United States, please give it to me because I think I've landed there. But if I haven't, it's on my list. <laughs> it's kind of like that. And then, and then that leads up to. Yeah. So, I mean, then that kind of, you know, now you kind of got the background for how we fly together. And, you know, we almost forget about a trip. Once we've done it, we start thinking about the next thing. For me, it was a little bit personal. I have a, I have a bucket list. It's a, it's a real list. I wrote it down 15 years ago. And I, I try to think of it like a to-do list. I mean, I actually do the things on my list. And not everything's aviation related, but a lot of things are. The things that I want to do, you know, flying across the Atlantic was one. Landing in all 50 states was another. And one of the items on the list was I wanted to fly to all 48 of the lower 48 states in the same trip. And uh, so, you know, the idea came up and we started, we started talking about it. It's good to have crazy friends. <laughs> that when you have crazy ideas, they're willing to, yeah. you know, maybe indulge you a little bit. We're both uh, kind of yes men for each other. Who's yeah. like, you want to go? Like the Bravo thing. I'm in. Yeah. I tell my friends all the time, if I say, hey, let's fly to Ushuaia, you know, southern tip of South America tomorrow, John's going to say yes. Yeah, so he's going to do his best to figure it out. Darn right. <laughs> <laughs> it strikes me, before we get too far into the into the 48, are you both instrument rated? Yes, we are. Okay. So you have essentially the same pilot qualifications and you're clearly good friends too with a very similar interest in adventure and i wonder just if 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 that's how that must make it easier in some ways to spend hour after hour after hour in the relatively confined space i mean a is comfortable but 
You know, right. it's not something that you would do with just anybody, is it? Yeah. Yes. <laughs> you know, especially at my size, I, I take up two thirds of the airplane. <laughs> it takes a, You know what? So it takes a tremendous amount of, of trust and comfort with the other person. You know, Bob's always very complimentary. And I say the same thing about, about Bob. He's a really good pilot, but he's also a lot of fun to fly with. And, you know, we've, we've spent the last six years, you know, kind of creating these, these adventures together and, you know, been maybe one or two uncomfortable moments, but for the most part, we fly, we fly very well together and we, we divide our duties very well. You know, that's something we might, that Bob will talk about, I think on this trip, how we divided the duties, the flying duties, but uh, on the Bravo trip, when we were, when we were trying to land it at all, all at every Bravo airport in the country, you know, there, there was always the desire that both of us would get a landing at both at, at each airport. So, you know, we'd be, we were gotten very comfortable handing off the controls, doing multiple patterns at a very busy airport and asking for things more, more, more than once. Our motto became ask and receive because, you know, like going into Boston, you know, where approach has got us and they go, what are your intentions? We're getting better at this. We like to land, fly the pattern once and leave. Ah, we're not doing that here. He hands us over to Tower. What are your intentions? We like to land, fly the pattern. <laughs> and they go, no, we're not doing that here. We get to ground. What are your intentions? We'd like to take off. Okay, granted. <laughs> Just keep asking. So funny. It's so funny. Dulles, too. Had that. We kind of ended up muscling our way into Dulles, too. Yeah. We had them vectors all around. Uh, Dulles was a very long approach. Up the Canada back. So. Exactly. <laughs> so, come on, man. We really got to get in there. We're trying to set. Well, it wasn't a record. But, um, but you, you know, the, to your point about being comfortable with each other, when we went to Alaska, you made me think of, when we went to Alaska, most people go. So did you go fishing? Did you go bear watching? Now nah, we flew. We get up. We fly until we're exhausted. And I, I'm not saying unsafe exhaustion levels, right? But let's just go. And we were there for the air. We just love the view. And we're flying as low as we feel safe. And we just go. And we're both very happy doing that. It's just I, there's the view you get in an airplane is just off the charts. It's just unbelievable, especially when you're not flying at 17,000 feet, you know, so... And you mentioned uh, there were maybe a couple of rough patches too. We we talk in you know aviation training and in aviation about you know crew resource management, and you you seem to have a kind of an elevated <laughs> version of that going on. And and I'm wondering if that you know has come into play in more tense moments as well as the fun stuff. Experience. It's not. It doesn't happen all at once. You don't, yeah. you don't put two pilots in a cockpit and instantaneously mesh and figure out how not to make mistakes. So we've, you know, we've made a few mistakes. We try to put those behind us and, and learn from them. And I think that this trip was kind of flawless. I mean, we didn't, there was, there was. No, I have some things I want to talk to you about. <laughs> <laughs> I'm kidding, kidding, kidding. No, I'm sorry to be there. But, but uh, you know, we, we now, we've learned to play off our strengths and, and, and our weaknesses. And, you know, when one, where one person might be stronger at something, that person does it. And that I think makes this type of flying low stress. Yeah. You know, we're not wondering what's the other person going to do. That's going to screw me up. We're both pretty egoless pilots. You know, I, I'm totally happy giving controls. I need to. And, and, and sometimes can I tell a LAX story? 
Sure. Tell me all <laughs> Funny story. I already said John's a great pilot. I'm a good pilot. He's a way better pilot than me. And we're flying around San Diego. We did a lot of junkets on that Bravo trip, too. We went to, um, I mean, you know, I hit the easy ones. Just tell you right. said, oh, in the Grand Canyon. That's all along the way. Why not land there? And then we go down to, uh, yeah, Kelly Island, San Diego. We're coming up to LAX. And I'm having a bad day. I'm just I'm just not working the radio well. I'm not keeping up. And John's always right. <laughs> so we're coming up to LAX. This is the second day. John landed the first day. And then. Now it's my turn to land at LAX. I've got, I've got controls. John's got the radio. And uh, this is a big learning curve moment. <laughs> and that was, that was our first mistake. I'll tell you, I'll, I'll say why. Well, I mean, so one of the things that we had done on that trip was we would, we would sometimes divide the duties where one person would have the radio and the other person would be flying the airplane. And that was actually a little out of my comfort zone because mm-hmm. of, because of right. the way I generally work radios. Generally, when I'm working the radio... If, if air traffic control says something to me, I put it in before I say it back because I have a short-term memory. I, I forget what they say. If I don't put it in and then say it back, I forget it. So it, 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 it plays into you know what happened, uh, so, what happened so, here. So we're coming up to LAX, right? And they're sending us on a – the way it goes is there's a lot of jets coming. And we're, <laughs> and we're heading north. And she goes, we're talking to a female controller. She goes, right turn. And I'm pilot command, John's got radio. She goes, right turn 070. I'm on autopilot. I turn the knob. John confirms 070. And by the way, before I say this, John's right 99.9% of the time and I'm wrong, you know, 80% of the time. But at this moment, I turn 070. He says it. Then he looks down, he goes, 170. I'm like, no, it's 070. Now, we start having a debate, which is a bad, you know, you don't have debates between pilots, right? You get back to your traffic control. Lesson number one. Lesson number two, I'm pilot in command. I should have cleared it up. Instead, we start talking about caller, caller, caller. But I make the mistake of starting to turn 170 because John's always right and I'm always wrong. <laughs> so now we're 170 heading back to San Diego. <laughs> and... and uh, he gets her on the radio eventually. What I should have done is hit the IDENT button and she would have called us, right? I've learned that trick. If you had IDENT and you're a, you know, I, uh, an instrument flight plan, they'll call you. So um, I learned that from Duncan Parsons, American Airline pilot. Great, great tip. Hit IDENT when in doubt. But anyway, we didn't do that. She goes, serious. Well, John called. Luckily, we called her before she, before she called us. And he goes, confirming 170. Serious. Left turn, <laughs> left turn, zero, zero, zero immediately. And our next radio call is to some United pilot. For some reason, we've got singers going south. That was our only bad moment in all these trips where, where we're, uh, it's like, oh, my God, man. I just, like, fill out the NASA forms. <laughs> we, we learned a lesson from that, and I think that changed yeah. the way, you know, we deal with crew resource management. And But, yeah, it. but we get along great. And, and uh, anyway, that's probably too long a story. <laughs> that's quite all right. Uh, uh, the recording time here appears to be infinite, so we're in good shape. Uh, um, so I don't know if you can calculate the number of hours that went into it, but, it, you know, I can imagine, you know, the planning that it took because it was one thing to decide to land in 48 states as quickly as possible something else to to do it for a record and you you had to to do some serious prep work for this you know i mean i I know you appreciate this there's you know there's 48 states but how many airports are there Five thousand some odd airports so you know trying to to plan a route 
that got somewhat efficiently through all 48 states, but at the same time also let us maximize fuel legs. So we had a few things we needed to accomplish. Number one, you know, we wanted to do it fast. Number two, we wanted to stop for gas as few times as possible. And we wanted to take advantage of the turbo when we could. So, you know, that meant trying to cluster as many airports as possible uh, near state borders and, and doing a whole bunch of landings, you know, in, in, in a short period of time. And then taking off and flying for two hours or two and a half hours and getting tailwinds. And, and for the most part, that worked. You know, we actually had a couple of legs where we had two and a half hour legs at 200 knots, uh, 240 knots yeah, tailwinds. Yeah, we, yeah. Had, we, had, we had 50 knot tailwinds yeah. coming up from Idaho to Montana. We were kicking. Um, but the, the fuel planning didn't, didn't always work because there were, a couple, there were a couple of legs that we would have liked to have gone four hours, but we had to stop at the two and a half hour mark because if we didn't stop at two and a half hours, the next leg would have been two and a half hours. We would have run out of gas. But, you know, Bob and I started working on the plan last year in 2022, and, and we, we shared a document. It started off as like a two column spreadsheet. Now yeah. it's probably 30 columns wide. Like, okay, we departed this time. You need to convert it to Zulu time, but you need local time so you know when the sun's going to be up and down, you know. And we it, were, it grew. It we, was a mess. We, we changed the airports. We changed everything on the route probably, you know, 100% by the time we actually flew it. And then we were even changing things the day of the flight because, you know, the weather messed us up. And, and you know, we started, we were calling airport. We were calling airports to, uh, you know, to secure services and get permission. And, and the very first airport we called on the day of the flight was going to be closed the, the next day, right. because the, so we had to change, we had to make some changes there too, but planning it took and way. And I don't even think it was NOTAM, was it? Was it NOTAM? It, it was, we didn't read it yet. Oh, we didn't, <laughs> we didn't, we didn't yeah. look at it, yeah, yeah. okay. Planning was harder than flying. And, and you took, I was reading in, in the newspaper story, something, you know, taking winds into effect. I mean, you're doing this weeks in advance, so you're, you're, you're basing some of your decision process on prevailing winds, I assume, as well. Like, that's getting it's, granular. It started off so just 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 to get something out of the way pretty early. We there's a pretty good chance we're going to do this again to defend it, <laughs> so because we know we can do it faster. So we're not going to give you the exact route. We'll, we'll talk about it in blueprints, right? Exact airports. Is that fair? Fair enough. So yeah, what you're saying is exactly the way it started out, right? I mean, you can imagine a flight plan. If you well, the fastest flight plan would be a dot. All the airports on top of each other. The next fast flight plan would be a circle. And you draw a circle around the country, and and then you start. You know, we all know you gotta get the four corners. You gotta get Maine, Washington, California, and Florida. So now you got kind of a square, and then you start pulling to the center as tight as you can. And then, but then John was brilliant. I thought with his, you know, do you want to space them out or do you want to tie and and make you know not overworking yourself where you got you know that kind of a game. And then you don't have to you don't have to complete the circle. You just have to take off and land in forty eight states. So you can take a piece of the circle out, right? If you think of the going around the country as a circle, you can take a piece out and you're right. The prevailing winds typically go west to east. And we always planned on taking off somewhere in the Midwest, going west, down and around and up the East Coast. But then that was always the plan. Everything was, and that spreadsheet was built on it. And then, but we also have time. You, we obviously both are flexible on time, <laughs> but we don't have endless flexibility. So there's a certain time window we had to hit or wait for another couple months. And we keep looking at the weather and the weather kept going east to west. There was this weird weather system and it's hanging, it's hanging. 
and we're using windy and we're using four flight and we're using weather. We actually got, um, look, we did most of this on our own, but we did get help from an AccuWeather guy, just big picture. We'd call him and say, you know, especially when we got to this point, we get to it and say, it looks like we should be going the other way around. It looks like it's going to be prevailing east to west along the bottom. And there was this counter cyclical, like almost cyclonic type weather system in Canada, which is bringing all that, you know, damn smoke down here right now and over Montana, South Dakota. And it's, a, it's, it's like a sawmill and it keeps seeing that on windy. And it's like, dude, let's, let's go to Maine. We're talking about this and we'll fight to death. Who said that first? It doesn't matter. The point is we end up saying we're doing this backwards. So we go to Maine, hang out there for a couple of days and started, but it was started around prevailing. But when, when it's showtime, you got to call audibles and say, Hey, this is not going to work. And that was a, actually, that was a lesson we learned from doing the Bravo airports because Oh yeah, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. You, you you would think that if you're taking a trip and you're going both directions, if you're going to go west and you're going to go east, you're going to go east, you're going to go west, you're going to get a headwind one direction, you're going to get a tailwind the other direction. But we learned when we did the Bravos. <laughs> Thank you, Lord. Keep it coming. <laughs> if you're <laughs> looping, it's possible to get a tailwind on the entire trip, and and so when we decided that yeah, we were going to be more flexible with the actual route and the direction that we went, and we started studying, and we realized you know, we could get a tailwind on 80% of this route. And the parts that weren't a tailwind was a small headwind or a crosswind. Yeah, and sometimes neutral. Know, we actually got pushed all the way down the East Coast. We, we, you know, going south, we had we had tailwinds. That was a roller coaster. Yeah. Oh, man, it was rocking. And, and, <laughs> Turbulence, and, big tailwind. Oh, my God. Thank you, the, John. And, and the <laughs> spots, and, right, and the spots <laughs> that we thought we were, we were most likely to have heavy headwinds, we really didn't. We, right. Had decent right, wins. Right. So right up until about two, two and a half minutes ago, I was, I had this idea in my head that that this was all about the adventure for you two, and the fact that it happens to be maybe a Guinness record was secondary. But then you go and pop that bubble by telling me that you're going to find a way to do it to shave a little bit more time off. That that's. That sounds racy. So <laughs> I got my we, version. I'm going to hear your version. We, we, were not, we were not particularly stressed on this flight. And, you know, you always analyze. Well, we're not going to fly stupid either, yeah. right? But, yeah. I mean, we, we, you know, we weren't, we weren't, we didn't feel like we were racing. And, and at, you know, when you're done, you always look back and you say, where could we have done this faster yeah. if we were, if we wanted to? And, and I think we both identified areas that we could have, probably shaved some serious time. And maybe it was route, you know, tweaking the route. Maybe it was tweaking the fuel planning. Maybe it was just... Um, well, we wouldn't have even taken off. The day we took off, there were storms in Georgia and Florida. We weren't even sure we'd get into Florida, right? There, there, there was, um, if you looked at the the big weather system map, where you're not looking tactically, you're looking kind of strategically, there was a chance we wouldn't even get down to Florida, Southern Georgia, Florida. And then that same storm was blocking us to get from Florida to, I think our next stop was Vicksburg, Mississippi. We had a dog leg around that. And so, but we were running out of time and then it's going to be, we're going to wait another month or two. So eventually we just got to, let's just go. And that's one that was kind of funny because with this, the, 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 the gentleman from AccuWeather took a call from us. He kept saying he thought we should leave. We ended up leaving on Wednesday, right? Yeah. Whatever 17th was. And he had been, we'd called him a week before and he said, I think the 18th, like, go, go on Thursday. And, and then a Monday I emailed him. I said, I can't, actually, I was thinking Tuesday. 
and I, you know, I was watching this. I was waking up. The first thing I'd do is look at the weather. I'd lunch, I'd look at the weather. Now I'd look at the weather. Eventually, we get to Maine. Okay, this is the week. We're going someday this week. And so, so then, then um, let's see. You know, we wake up. Oh, Monday night. Monday night at dinner? We're like, the weather sucks the whole week. Maybe we should just go home. You know, let's, yeah, let's go. Let's go to Nashville and Minneapolis. Let's find something. We're going to just turn this into a junket. Let's go do something we haven't done, have some fun. And then it turned into, okay, here's what we'll do. They both Wednesday and Thursday look crappy. We'll get up tomorrow at the time that, you know, we wanted to go. Cause we wanted to leave around 10 AM. So we'll get up at eight. We'll do or seven, whatever it was, get up our breakfast. We'll make a call. If the next day looks definitely better, we'll wait another day. But if they look the same, we're leaving today. Cause that way we know we'll get it done. We'll go home. And that's what happened. But both days look frankly crappy. Right. And we're, we're going to get blocked to Florida. We're going to have a problem going into Vicksburg. And then on the way to Texas, there were storms. And we were going to go into Parrington originally, and it turned into Dal, Dal, Dalton or Dalbert, whatever, far northwest corner of the Panhandle. So you wouldn't have left with those storms. And that added time, right? Because we had to go around those. We laid up, and there was one particularly long in, in the scheme of this trip, probably 45 minute fuel stop, where we were watching that weather close. You know, we flew further into Georgia than we originally mm -hmm. planned because we said, let's get in there and get fuel as close as we can to the system. And then while we're there, you know, this happens more often. Thank you, Lord, keep it coming. You get this little alley that develops. It's like, let's go, man. <laughs> Destin is open for business. <laughs> so we shoot a night approach into Destin. Now the sun is set. That was our first uh, night approach. We take off, and now we have to go basically straight west for a while before we can turn up to Mississippi. So that added time. And, yeah, look, we this trip would have happened with or without the Guinness record, to your point. But that made it, you know, that's a really nice icing. And now that we've done it, it's like, to your point, you're, you're critical, right? We, we try to learn something from every flight. Like, don't fight with the controller. Right, right, right. <laughs> so, so. so before I forget to ask, the freedom that you enjoy to be able to, to take these adventures, that comes from owning a business, is it, John? Or I forget which of you I does work, I work as a financial advisor. Bob owns a business. I have the ability to work remote a lot and also have a very understanding family. Yeah, um, I've, I've, had, I've been an entrepreneur since two years out of college. I'm, you know, but I emphasize experience over money. I'm that kind of guy. I, I just, it's, you know, I don't wake up today and tomorrow thinking how I can make more money. I think about how can I enjoy life? Look, 66 years old, I made the mistake of Googling how long I have to live and that's 18 years. <laughs> but white male, United States, how long do I have? 18 years, okay. Half of those are gonna be good. So I got nine more years of enjoying my life. And uh, that's where that freedom comes from, uh, doing math and realizing you're not around forever. That's awesome. Very, that's a great answer. South America, is that the next thing or what, what is what is next? That's one of the things we bounced around. That's We started talking about that one years ago. As soon as we hit Barrow. Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. well, let's go the other way. Because we, we flew to, the, to Barrow, Alaska, which is the northernmost tip of, I think that's the northernmost city, inhabited city in the United States. Yeah. And so... You know, kind of as an offshoot of that, we started talking about, you know, where's the southernmost tip of uh, yeah. of the Americas, and it was Ushuaia. Uh, so that's that's an yeah, idea. I, I was so close. I, went, I did a trip to Buenos Aires commercially, and while I was there, I rented a Cirrus and an instructor, and we did. That was actually my first technically international flight. We went to Uruguay and back, which is like going from Illinois to Minnesota and back or something. But I wanted to experience that. Thank God I had a Spanish speaking instructor because that wouldn't have worked out well for me. But I was so close to Shuaia. It's like, it's right there. Patagonia is like right there. And I've only got a plane for a day. It was killing me. So it's like, okay, we got to go. 
but we've talked around the world, but that's yeah. not, that won't happen now with uh, Ukraine, I don't think. Yeah, the, and around the world, that another bucket list item for me has been, you know, so I crossed off the the across the Atlantic. I've done that twice. Actually, I have another. So you talk about what's next. I'm doing another transatlantic in a couple of weeks. Now he's and, bragging. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so that's that one's become really my favorite type of flying. You know, getting to see Greenland and Iceland and and the challenge of flying across the ocean, but. Well, you yeah. almost ferried a plane from Japan back. And that got yeah, well, I had a I had a, a flight that was almost going to be in around the world from Japan to California, you know, going the long way around. But you know, the, the war in Ukraine kind of messed everything up. So it'd be, be nice if uh, well, I won't we won't get political. <laughs> <laughs> we all just get along. We got the plane. So quick stat: the paper said you spent about four grand in fuel. On yeah, the think, 48 yeah, hours? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I would give yeah. or take. I'm not, I'm just, yeah, yeah, yeah round yeah. number wise. Yeah, yeah, that's very close. And it was 44 hours. What was the official time? No, 38 hours, 13 minutes. 38 hours, 13 minutes. Yeah. That's impressive. And that, in the previous record, had been 16 days or something like that. Yeah. So, Which is. <laughs> You know, I, with all due respect to those guys, in fact, I've reached out to them and said, we want to buy you dinner and drinks. I mean, I, I'd love to meet them both, right? And one of them might take us up on, he's down in Florida. My daughter found him on Instagram. We thought we could do it in 36. Our plan, if everything went perfectly, we thought we could do it in 36. We still think we could. If you could each pick, what was your, do you have a highlight moment from the, from the trip itself? Uh, what do you think you're going to remember most uh, 10 years, 20 years from now? You know, Jim, that's a great question. So... For me, my highlight from the trip was the first morning after the first night. So it had been a long day of flying. We'd been up for almost 24 hours. I'd actually right. gotten a little bit of sleep that night. And I woke up. I woke up out of a dream, and Bob was flying the airplane as we were approaching Monument Valley. And the sun was coming up as I woke up. That's a great scene. And, and I'm, and I'm, I'm open my eyes and I look out and there's Monument Valley and the Grand Canyon and Page, Arizona, and the colors were just, I mean, it was just, it was surreal. It was spectacular. And, and, and to this being the first thing I saw after a long, a long night, I felt like I was in a, a masterpiece painting, but my eyes were looking at it. I tried to take a picture of it and it just didn't, didn't do justice. So to me, that was just this magnificent view of watching the, the sunrise over Monument Valley and the Grand Canyon. Yeah, so uh, I, get, I always have long-winded answers, as you already know. The uh, I'm, I'm going to give you a three. The first landing, uh, we take off, big crosswinds. John's got the airplane. We haven't worked out our logistics. Are you going to land one? I'm going to land one. You know, who's filming? There's the heavy documentation requirements for Guinness. I'm filming, and I'm a camera nut, right? I, I, every flight I have is documented. Cameras hanging out, you know, under the wings of whatever, <laughs> but not on this trip. But the point is, there's a lot of wires, a lot of tech, which we haven't even, John doesn't even know how to do. So this first landing, we come in, it was that Vermont or New Hampshire? I always forget which is one first. Yeah, one of the, they're right there. <laughs> they're right, um, and Look, we've done the homework on the airport. We know we can, we got enough runway, right, in <laughs> performance. But it's down in a valley, displaced threshold, trees lined on all four sides. John hits this thing. I'm like, big guy at you. 
So I just never remember, we're, we got our work cut out for us because the whole, turns out, the whole New England coast is full of these airports and we picked those kind of airports. So careful what you wish for. I'll never forget the first landing. Number two was I flew the leg from, what the hell was it, Arkansas or whatever, down to Texas where John got a little sleep. And so I'm dodging these thunderstorms coming around. And so you know, it's quiet in the airplane. The clouds are lighting up with, with that. We're a safe distance. Actually, it's on both sides. Safe distance both ways. That's spectacular view. And then there's a story. The variety would be number three. Just the massive variety we saw in 38 hours. But my finest flying moment, his finest flying moment, <laughs> was John. So we're coming home. We thought we were home free when we got to Walla Walla, Washington. We thought, oh, this is easy now. I mean, I've flown to Sturgis a bunch of times. Also ridden my motorcycle. I've done it both ways. <laughs> so, but but uh, we're thinking, oh, this is easy, man. It's just straight line to you know, Chicago and Indiana. We're home. And got all that smoke from Canada. So we're actually having to go IMC sometimes. And we picked this one airport. So we went, what, South Dakota, Minnesota, Nebraska, Sioux City, Nebraska, and then Sioux City, Iowa. Just a little Z, all right there in a the corner. And I had this one circled from the very first time you sent the spreadsheet. The Sioux City, Nebraska airport has no approaches in it. And I actually have a circle probably still in fourth flight where I said, this one could be a problem. And so anyway, we're coming in. The sun is setting. It's not fully dark yet, but the sun is setting. The air is filled with smoke and we get fuel and we're trying to fill up now to finish the trip. And like, like fill up the fuel faster. Let's get in the air and let's get at this airport because there's no approaches into it. So we get in the air, <laughs> we get in the air and I'm, John's like, hey, file it in fourth flight. See if you can get a flight plan in. So get it in. And we're not going to be able to see this airport. It's tiny. It's a sidewalk with the number 32 painted on its side. <laughs> and John goes to the controller. How low can you vector us? I mean, it, it, maybe this is something obvious to everybody else. I wouldn't ask that question. He goes, I can take you down to 3,000 feet. He goes, okay, give us 3,000 direct to the airport and let's see if we can get a visual. And he does. So we're flying now straight at this airport. And I get John, give a couple degrees to the right so I can look down. Because this, this kind of visual is like you're going to see it down, but you're not going to see it out. And all of a sudden, there it is, 32. And John goes, call the turn. He calls for the visual, you know, contact type approach and makes this turn. It was like, dude, that was epic. Because it would have cost us, look, we would have still got the record, but it probably would have cost us another 20, 30 minutes to go find another airport. Uh, and by hitting that, Sioux City, Iowa is like four minutes, I think, mm -hmm. from it. But from a flying trick point of view, you're the man. <laughs> I thought it was great. <laughs> All right, so 38 hours, that's a long time to have your butt in the airplane. That's, it, that's is. A, it truly that's, is. I bet they were sore. <laughs> they were ready to get out of there. But, you know, yeah. they their attitude was really good. They had you know great help, like they said, behind them, backing them. And the record, I'm going to say the record is going to be super difficult to meet or beat, Ian. This is just unheard of to, to slash a 48-hour 40, record. To, into just 38 hours and change, that's going to be pretty tough to best that. Yeah, absolutely. All right, that's all the time we have. I'm Ian Twomley. Our editor is Austin Hansen. And I'm David Tulis. Don't forget you can find us at aopa.org slash hangertalk 
or wherever you get your podcasts. All right. We'll see you. See you next time, Ian. Hangar Talk from AOPA. Your freedom to fly.